Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with RFF fellow Penny Liao. Along with several co-authors, Penny has recently published two fascinating journal articles on how disasters such as wildfires, hurricanes, and floods affect local government finances. In today's episode, Penny will help us understand how these disasters affect local tax revenues and service provision, why that matters, and what role the states and federal government play in supporting local communities affected by these disasters. As climate change increases the risks for some of these damaging weather events, we'll also talk about how their effects can vary across different types of communities, potentially exacerbating existing inequalities. Stay with us. Penny Liao, our colleague here at Resources for the Future. Welcome back to Resources Radio. Thank you. So, Penny, because we had you on the show fairly recently, we're not going to start with our typical first question where we ask you how you got inspired to work on energy or environmental issues. Uh, Instead, we'll refer people back uh, several months to your your initial episode with us. We're going to dive right in today, and we're going to talk about two papers that you've recently co-authored that look at how certain disasters, including wildfires, extreme weather events, uh, how they affect local fiscal conditions. So before we start talking about um, the details, I think it'd be helpful to make sure everybody understands what we mean when we say local fiscal issues. So can you help us understand that term and why it matters for communities? Absolutely. Um, Local fiscal issues are basically issues related to local government budgets. There are two sides to local government budgets, the revenues and the expenditures. The revenues comes from a number of taxes um, that people are familiar with, such as property tax, sales tax, as well as a number of charges and fees for specific purposes. Um, In return for collecting this revenue, the local governments spend money to deliver a range of essential services to local residents such as education, policing, uh, building and maintaining infrastructure, etc. So when we think about local fiscal issues, uh, a key question we often think about is whether the budget is balanced or whether the revenues are sufficient to cover the expenditures. The fiscal health of the local government is very important for the residents' well-being. If the revenues fall short to cover the expenditures, the local government might have to raise additional taxes or cut down on services they provide. For example, the city of Fairfield, Alabama, had to stop bus service in 2016 when they were in serious financial trouble. You can imagine that stopping important services like this or raising taxes could have a pretty negative impact on residents' lives. Uh, In addition, If local government starts raising taxes or they start to cut back on services, this could make some residents leave or it might make it harder to attract new people to move in. And so the local government's fiscal health is also closely associated with sort of the long term prospect of the community. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I think about it all the time, actually, because I live near Detroit, Michigan, and Detroit is a place that struggled with fiscal issues for for quite some time and and continues to do so in a way that really has significant effects on on residents especially when it comes to education and and crime and infrastructure. So, um hopefully that gives people a, a little bit of a flavor of of these issues and why they matter. 
Uh, let's talk first about a paper that you published jointly with Carolyn Kuski, uh, another RFF affiliate, uh, that focuses on wildfires in California. Can you tell us a little bit about what you studied in that paper and what you found about how wildfires affected local public finances in that state? Sure. Uh, in this study, we examine the budgets of municipalities in California after they are hit by a wildfire uh, between 2000 to 2015. In particular, we look at the different components of the budget and see how they change in the five years following a major wildfire event, uh, which we defined as having 10% of the population uh, exposed to the wildfire. Overall, we find that the impact of wildfires on the budget balance is negative. Uh, we look at this measure called excess revenues, which is total revenues minus total expenditures. We find that excess revenues decreased by an amount that is about 10% of the budget. So that means that it becomes harder for municipalities to balance their budget. We also look at whether the municipalities uh, run a deficit and find that the probability of having a deficit goes up by 25 percentage points. So that's a pretty sizable effect. Then we try to break down sort of this overall effect on the budget balance by looking at individual components in the budget. We see that this effect is mainly driven by a large increase in expenditures. Uh, the largest increase is in the category of community development, where there's like a 40% increase in spending. We also see substantial increases in public safety and transportation, and these are likely associated with the need to recover infrastructure. We also find large increases in fire and disaster preparedness. Um, when we look at the revenue side, we did not find a negative impact, which is what we might expect if wildfires destroy part of the housing stock that never gets rebuilt. Or if people expect, you know, that there are more wildfires and start moving away. We did see evidence of an increase in functional revenues starting from the year following the fire. Uh, this, this type of increase in functional revenues typically requires voter approval. And so that's why we think there's the delay. This could mean that the local government is trying to collect additional revenues to fund the higher spending. In general, we find that revenue impacts are not negative. Um, and part of that could be that uh, a lot of the wildfire damages are covered by insurance. And also that the fires during our sample period of 2000 to 2015 are milder than some of the more recent fires that we've seen since the 2017 wildfire season. Right. Interesting. And we'll talk about state and federal support as well in a minute. But um, but before we, we do, I wanted to ask one just clarifying question. You mentioned, I think, functional revenues at one point. Can you define that term for us? Oh, yes. So functional revenues are revenues that are specifically associated with specific functions. Got it. Okay. So revenue that's dedicated for roads or public yes. transportation or something like that. Yes. Okay, great. So um, before I ask you about uh, state and federal support, I'm interested to hear about how these findings might vary across communities that have different socioeconomic characteristics, higher income or lower income communities, or communities with different kind of racial demographics. Can you speak to that? 
Right. So in this particular paper, we did not explicitly look at how these effects differ based on the socioeconomic characteristics. We did look at whether different demographic groups moved in following a major wildfire event. Um, and we found that there's an increase in Hispanic home buyers. This could mean that Hispanic populations might disproportionately bear the consequences of these local fiscal adjustments following the fire. And potentially they could face additional future wildfire risk. But we need a more in-depth analysis to understand sort of the cause of these demographic changes. Interesting. And and I you may not have looked into this in the paper, um, but I'm curious, do you know if there tend to be sort of lower property values in places that experience wildfire after a wildfire event? Could that be explaining some of what's going on? There is an existing study in Colorado looking at whether house prices are affected after a wildfire, and it does. Uh, so there is a negative impact on uh, housing prices for a few years after the fire, especially if you can see the scarring effect of the fire. But those effects are tend to be short-lived. Mm. That's really interesting. So let me ask you now, Penny, about the question that I alluded to a moment ago, which is about support from sort of larger government entities. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, the local government costs associated with wildfire compare to um, the funds that state and federal government spend on these types of issues w- with regard to wildfire prevention and suppression and then response to a fire after it occurs? Yeah, this is a great question. So the vast majority of wildfires actually start in wildlands that is either federal land or state controlled or they fall under federal or state jurisdiction. So the federal and state governments actually bear most of the costs of forest management for fire prevention, for example, or fire suppression. Local governments are responsible for firefighting if the fire comes to their jurisdiction. But a lot of times, federal and state efforts can prevent that from happening in the first place. Uh, And so the big picture is that While local jurisdictions do experience negative fiscal impacts from wildfires, and they do incur some firefighting costs when the wildfire come to their jurisdiction, they actually do not bear most of the costs associated with wildfire. Um, And there is a really interesting paper by Justin Boomhauer and Patrick Bayliss on the economic incidence of wildfire suppression in the U.S. That's kind of my go-to source uh, if people are interested to learn more. That's great. Um, yeah, we'll have a link to that uh, paper in the show notes. And we had Judd Boomhauer on the show a couple of years ago, I think, talking about public safety power shutoffs in uh, in California and their connection with wildfire. You know, one other question that pops to mind is the role of federal or state like disaster aid to local communities that experience wildfire. When you know, the federal government or the state government comes in and provides financial support to these communities. Do they help pay for things like wildfire kind of preparedness at the local level to offset some of those local government costs? Um, I think that uh, the federal government uh, transfers in disaster aid for a long time has been more focused on post-disaster repairs. And so, yes, they do support some of those um post-disaster rebuilding activities. Um, but for wildfires, uh, 
this kind of federal support is only becoming more prominent in recent years. Uh, in the years that we study, the fires are relatively more mild. And, and at least in our study, we did not see uh, an increase or a remarkable increase in intergovernmental transfer. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, um, we're going to move on in just a second and talk about uh, another paper that you co-authored, this time on extreme weather, like floods and hurricanes. But is there anything else on this wildfire and uh, fiscal impacts of wildfire paper that you'd like to mention before we move on? Um, I think that it would be interesting to examine sort of the effect of more recent uh, fire seasons, uh, given that, you know, there is there is a whole regime switch in terms of the severity of the fire. Um, and I think that it could also have uh, different effects on sort of the general fiscal health of governments. For example, during the during the years we study, there has not been a case where uh Government bonds have been downgraded or, or in ratings, but it has happened, um, since then, um, with the 2017 fire. So, yeah. So I think that there are a lot of interesting new dynamics that could, um, be interesting to study in future research. Right. Yeah. And especially as climate change exacerbates some of these extreme wildfire risks. Sounds like a really important topic. So, um, speaking of, Climate change exacerbating risk. Uh, let's talk about extreme weather. Um, so, you know, this is another paper, of course, that we'll have a, a link to in the show notes. It's, it's with several co-authors. It's called Extreme Weather Events and Local Fiscal Responses, Evidence from U.S. Counties. And you look with your co-authors in that paper about how floods and hurricanes affect local fiscal conditions. Can you just give us a little bit of an intro to that paper and then talk about some of the key results? Absolutely. Uh, this is joint work with Ching Mao at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology uh, and two other co-authors. In this paper, we conduct a similar analysis in flavor, uh, but we look at county government budgets across the U.S. and we look at how they respond to hurricanes and floods. We find similar results on the spending side as the previous paper that spending increases in the five years following a disaster. We also see an increase in intergovernmental transfer in this case, uh, which suggests that at least part of the increase in spending is being funded through transfers from higher levels of government. On the other hand, we see that tax revenues decreased in the long run uh, on average. This could reflect sort of broader adjustment in the local economy or housing market. Our results also suggest that hurricanes have larger impact than floods, which could be because hurricanes cause more extensive damages. Uh, we see that counties uh, take on significantly more debt following a hurricane, uh, but not following a flood. Hmm. That's really interesting. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, what types of services counties are needing to provide that requires them to take on that debt after after such an event? So the increase in spending, um, I think, is of a similar nature as what we see in the wildfire paper, that there's uh, damage to local infrastructure or they might need to support, you know, local rebuilding. Uh, and so there's like a lot of additional expenditure in those regards. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And similar to the wildfire paper, uh, if I'm 
uh, reading your analysis correctly, this paper runs through the year 2015. And so is it reasonable to think that this analysis might also be missing some of the more recent events that uh, could have been exacerbated by climate change? Uh, yes, it does not include 2017 Harvey, for example, or like the hurricanes after that. Right, right, great. So similar question to the previous one about uh, wildfires. I'm curious if you and your co-authors found uh, any effects or important issues that varied across counties that had different socioeconomic characteristics uh, in terms of income or, or any other variables. And, um, and, if, and if that's the case, whether you all had any hypotheses as to why that might be happening. Yes. So the results I just described are sort of the average effect across all the counties, uh, but it actually masks a lot of heterogeneity. And in this study, we look at a broad enough set of counties that we can actually try to, you know, unpack the heterogeneity a bit by comparing effects in high versus low income counties. Uh, and we did find that there are significant differences. Um, in higher income counties, we see a much larger increase in spending. While, uh, in lower income counties, we do see, you know, change in spending in the same direction, but it's not statistically significant, uh, and smaller. This difference in spending could be because high income counties have a greater ability to raise additional funds to support the increase, uh, while lower income counties might not have the same capacity, and so they might have to cut down on other services to keep the spending from increasing too much. Uh, our other findings are consistent with this idea. For example, we find that tax revenues actually increase in higher-income counties, while the tax revenues decrease in lower-income ones. Uh, higher-income counties also get more intergovernmental transfers, uh, but not lower-income counties. As a result, we see that low-income counties end up borrowing more, while higher-income counties, there's actually a moderate drop in debt. So we also look at uh, differences along the dimension of social vulnerability using uh, you know, the, the popular composite index of social vulnerability developed by Susan Cutter and her colleagues. We see a similar divergence when we compare high versus low social vulnerability counties, which is not surprising because it is correlated with income. Um, so overall, the big picture is that the negative effect is more pronounced uh, in low income or socially vulnerable counties. I think the primary reason, well, we cannot say definitively, but the primary reason for these differences is likely to be that lower income or socially vulnerable counties are less able to absorb the disaster damage, as they don't have as much financial resources to act as buffer. Uh, they might not have the same ability to raise additional funds because the underlying economy or the local housing markets might not be as robust. And then some institutional factors might also be playing a role here, as we do find a difference in intergovernmental transfers. Some recent studies have found uh, consistent findings that they suggest that disaster aid programs or even how disaster declarations are set up, it might favor wealthier communities. So this could 
potentially explain why, you know, in, in higher income counties, we see a larger increase in intergovernmental transfer. They're more likely to benefit from these programs. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder, um, can you talk a little bit more about why that might be the case and, and how the sort of distribution of these intergovernmental transfers that, that follow, for example, a declaration of a presidential uh, disaster, um, you know, why that might uh, be affected by local incomes? Yeah, so in general, a lot more work needs to be done in this area to to discover all the mechanisms. But some of the mechanisms that um, has been found, for example, the disaster declarations uh, for a long time was based on a per capita damage indicator. And the per capita damage indicator necessarily reflects, you know, how much um, property value or asset value is on the ground that gets destroyed. And you can imagine that in wealthier communities, there are more valuable assets on the ground that, that gets damaged. And so if we continue to use that indicator, then, then this, the criteria might favor, uh, these higher income communities. Um, the other thing is that a lot of the post disaster recovery programs or even programs that help communities to build up resilience, they require, uh, some technical capacities of the community to lay out the plan of, you know, what to do. And, and that requires a lot of technical knowledge that lower capacity communities might not be able to put together. Um, there is also a cost share requirement that, you know, generally local governments are expected to pay for 25% of a project while the federal government will pay for 75%. And that cost share could also be a heavy burden for lower capacity communities. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I'd love to point people to figure two of this paper where there's a really neat map that kind of identifies the counties that have received different uh, numbers of presidential disaster declarations following floods and hurricanes. And you see this interesting concentration around sort of New York City, Long Island, Boston, the sort of Northeast population centers, as well as places like the Gulf Coast and, and the Carolinas where we see a lot of hurricane activity. But then there's also, uh, to me at least, surprising concentration of counties in what look like North and South Dakota, as well as the area around Seattle and even parts of Southern California. Um, so I was uh, actually quite just interested to see uh, that those places had experienced so many uh, disasters that I certainly wouldn't have expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Penny, one thing that I'm wondering about with these presidential disaster declarations is whether there could be any politics involved. Um, so, you know, if it is in the hands of a president to make this decision, could they be, you know, making decisions to, to benefit their constituents uh, or the base of their party, for example? Um, maybe I'm misunderstanding the way that presidential disaster declarations get made, but I'm wondering if that could be a factor in this as well. So, yeah, so in general, how the presidential declaration is made is that uh, the governor will put together a request uh, and then FEMA will recommend whether or not to make the declaration and in which program, and then the president will, will then make a decision. So this involves, you know, the state government, FEMA and the president. And uh, there has been a paper looking at you know, factors influencing presidential declarations. 
It turns out that yes, several factors are at play. Whether or not this is a presidential election year matters a lot. Um, party alignment between the, the uh, governor and the president. In earlier years, FEMA are under the oversight of several congressional committees, and it turns out that uh, congressional committee members' um, party affiliation. And which state they're from also matters, and so there are some political economy factors at play, according to this paper. Right, that's really interesting and slightly disturbing, <laughs> but thank you for for sharing it. Sounds really interesting. So, um, Penny, I'd love to ask you now on uh, your sort of current stream of work. I- I'm interested to know whether you're doing additional work on local fiscal issues, uh, and if so, what you're exploring uh, along these lines. You've already mentioned several great uh, sort of important research questions, but I'm wondering if you can talk about which ones you're most interested in exploring, whether related to fiscal issues or, or some other area of work. Sure. So my most recent work uh, related to fiscal issues uh, is actually just coming out in Nature Climate Change. Uh, this work is led by Jesse Gorowich at the Environmental Defense Fund and joined with folks at several other organizations, uh, such as the Federal Reserve and the First Street Foundation. We quantified the extent to which flood risk is under-evaluated in U.S. housing markets, uh, meaning by how much homes with flood risk um, are overpriced or overvalued compared to expected damage. For local governments, this is a fiscal risk because property values might adjust uh, in the future to reflect the proper risk level. And in that case, their tax base will take a hit. So in order to figure out which communities are most exposed to this overvaluation risk, we identify uh, the municipalities that not only have high overvaluation, but are also highly dependent on property taxes for revenues. And so that's basically the paper. We're trying to connect overvaluation to the potential fiscal risk that different municipalities are facing. Another work I want to flag is with my RFF colleagues, uh, Hannah Druckenmiller, Margaret Walls, Sophie Pasek, and Shen Zhang. We study the Coastal Barrier Resources Act, which removes uh, federal development incentives, disaster aid and flood insurance uh, in certain designated coastal areas with the intention to curb overdevelopment in risky areas. Uh, well, we don't have time to go into it, but we have some fascinating findings on the implications of this policy on local property tax base which I think is informative for local communities that are grappling with this tension between sort of how do you limit exposure to disaster risk um, while keeping the property tax base strong. Um, we will have a working paper out pretty soon. That's great. Well, I look forward to reading it, and uh, I imagine all of our listeners will as well. It sounds really fascinating. Um, well, Penny Liao, uh, thank you so much for sharing all this work. You've got a lot on your plate, and uh, it's impressive that you can um, uh, manage so many research streams at once. I <laughs> thank have to you. Take some pointers from you. Um, 
And now let's uh, go to our last question, which we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, that you think is really great and you think our listeners would enjoy. And uh, I'm actually going to make a recommendation as well today, which is uh, a new book uh, by Douglas Brinkley, a historian. And the book is called Silent Spring Revolution, John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. It's like it's a really long book. It's like 800 pages or something, but but it is at the top of my stack, and I am going to dig into it um, sometime soon. Um, this is a little log really. The the reason I actually learned about this book is because a friend of mine was reading it and um, came to a passage where they actually quote me. Uh, there's like like a long quote from the book that I wrote in 2017 about fracking, and the author Douglas Brinkley refers to me as a historian. He says, historian Daniel Ramey writes, blah, 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 blah. And so it just made me really happy because I'm definitely not a historian, uh, but a great historian thinks I'm a historian, which makes me happy. Good job um, getting another hat. Yeah, I know. Thank you. I need <laughs> I need to like get a plaque from my wall or something like that. Uh, but how about you, Penny? What's at the top of your reading stack? So I recently finished a collection of Mary Oliver's poems. Uh, the book is called Devotions. It's not a new book. I think it, it came out maybe also in 2017. Uh, she was known for taking long walks in the woods, and a lot of her poetry is about sort of her connection with the natural world and, you know, the creatures in, in it, and her meditations about how this connection influenced her as she went through life. Um, and I find it a really wonderful read, so I just want to recommend it. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Penny, uh, again, for coming on the show, sharing your work with us. It's been really fascinating, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org slash donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.